All right, we're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bibles to Isaiah. We're in a new book for this Advent season, um, and this new series is Christmas Will Come. Isaiah is right about in the middle of your Bibles. If you just want to crack it open in the middle, you'll probably get pretty close. It's page 575 in the Black Bibles. If you want to turn there, we'll be in Isaiah 11 today. Uh, But over the next several weeks, this series we're calling Christmas will come is focusing on the promises that Isaiah made 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. And so it's this glory of these prophecies and promises that this day is going to come, that salvation is coming, that this great leader we've all been waiting for is going to come. As we look back at the Old Testament people looking forward to Christmas coming, we also kind of enjoy that in a sense in the way that we celebrate Christmas, right? There's this kind of anticipation. We're excited about the day or the week, or whatever it might be. And that's part of what we, many of us, have taken into our Advent and Christmas celebration. Uh, But we also recognize that we're looking forward to the second Advent. So Advent just means the arrival of something really important or awesome, right? So we're saying we're looking back at the first Advent of Jesus, that he came and fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies, and we're looking forward to him coming again. And so in the wintertime, it's fitting for us. It makes sense that the church historically has celebrated the birth of Jesus during the winter months, it's this idea that in the darkest time of the year, a light is shining upon us. That in the coldest time of the year, we have the comfort and the warmth of Jesus himself. As we think about the kind of the scariness of, of the darkness outside, and especially if you're, I'm a Texan, so it's especially weird for us, like it's cold outside. Like that's just weird to us. When, when it's cold like this, we're like, what is happening? What's going on? It's shocking and it's confusing. Uh, and we long to be warm. We long to be wrapped up. And I can remember a time, maybe a year and a half ago, we were visiting with one of our grandbabies. It was before the second one was born. She was somewhere in the two-year-old range. She was just starting to make complex sentences. Um, She was just starting to make sentences that kind of made sense, you know, paragraphs, stringing things together, uh, more than just like ball, mommy, you know, cup, stuff like that. She was actually, actually communicating. And we were so excited to talk to her more. And when we came, the thing that she kept talking about was how much she wanted to sleep in the same room as us, right? And she kept saying, if I sleep in the same room as Mama, when I cry in the middle of the night, then Mama will let me sleep with her. And that was what she was so excited about. Like that was her big hope was like, oh, I can be in there instead of my parents being like, go back to bed. Mama will just pull me right into bed with her and everything will be okay, right? And it's this comfort. Well, as we go through the themes of Advent and Christmas coming, today we're fixating on hope. Hope will come. And so the first prophecy and promise of Isaiah that we're going to fixate on is this coming hope that they were looking forward to. This is in Isaiah 11. So again, it's page 575 in the Black Bibles, Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, Life is scary. Life is hard for us, just like it was for the Old Testament people of God 700 years before Christ. We both experience this kind of longing for hope to be fulfilled. And here it's promised in the person and work of Jesus in the pages of Isaiah. So Isaiah 11, we'll start off by just reading the first few verses, and then we'll read the rest of the verses of this chapter as we move through the morning. But starting with the first three verses, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. 
And so here we have the promises of Isaiah that this leader is coming, this shoot, this descendant, this branch from the line of Jesse and David. This hope is coming. This king is going to come and going to make everything okay. In the Bible, hope is an action. It's something that we do. We hope in a better future. But hope is also anchored in a person. And that's what these promises and prophecies are about. So when we say Christmas will come, we're not saying that our hope is in some holiday party. We're saying that our hope is in Jesus. That, that's what we're talking about. We're saying that our hope is Jesus coming again for us. He is our blessed hope. So let's pray that his spirit would help us to truly see and savor him in this text and in these promises. Let me pray. God, we pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would help us to hope in you, that we would see and celebrate the work that you've done by sending Jesus for us, and that would grow our hope in your return, that you are coming back for us, that you haven't left us as orphans. You send your spirit. Your spirit helps us to hear and receive your word. Your spirit helps us to delight in you. We pray that you'd be with us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, there's uh, some definitions I want to kind of make for us, and then we'll move through the text verse by verse. So one of them was hope. I already mentioned this. Hope is kind of like faith. Uh, We sometimes talk about it as an action, right? I have faith in Christ, but faith can also be used as what the object of the faith is. Sometimes that's the way the, the word is used in the New Testament, the object of our faith. In the same way, hope, we think about hope as something I do, and we have to be careful because in English, it's kind of soft. The way we use it in the modern world, it's kind of like, I wish maybe this might happen, and we use it that way. But in the New Testament, it is rock solid. We have an anchor for our souls, Jesus Christ, who has passed through the heavens. And so Hebrews really reiterates that, that our hope is a solid anchor. It's secure in the person of Jesus himself. So we need to keep that in mind. Hope is this kind of wishing for a better future, but it's also a very solid anchor that we have in the person and work himself. I also want to define a little more what this language is, kind of weird, poetic Old Testament language about Jesse. Jesse was merely the father of King David. So King David and King Solomon were the greatest kings that ever lived in the history of Israel. These were the glory days of Israel. And so when they would imagine their future where the perfect king comes, they're imagining it with the template of these great kings. But they, like us, have read the Bible, and they know that King David and King Solomon were sinners and did not have eternal thrones. So they were looking forward to a perfectly righteous king that would come that's in this line, in this dynasty. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises an eternal throne and that David's house would be blessed. He wasn't talking about David's physical house, brick and mortar. He's talking about his dynasty, his descendants, that there would be an eternal kingdom. And that's what the Old Testament people of God were hoping in. So this language about the, st- uh, the stump of Jesse and the root of Jesse, part of the reason it's a stump is God was judging his people for disobedience and God chopped down the tree. He, he, he brought in the Assyrians and he brought in the Babylonians and the Israelites were, were pushed out into exile and the city was burned and, and the kingdom line was chopped down and the people of Israel were chopped down. There was judgment but new life is going to come and grow again. That's what's being promised here. Isaiah, again and again, throughout the whole book, is like, judgment's coming. Like, God's not going to tolerate your sin. You're going to be scattered into exile. And yet, new little sprouts of life are going to come back. Jonathan Cobb and I always joke and call this tree out here by the playground our Jesse tree. 
Some people use the Jesse tree for Christmas. Stephanie talked about that last week to, to celebrate this idea. Um, but we're talking about this bush out here that used to be a 10-foot-tall a Monterey oak, and then two winter storms killed it. We had to chop it down, and then guess what happened? Little shoots, little branches started growing again. New life has come to this little tree out here. And that's the, that's the image. That's what he's talking about. He's saying new life is going to come to Israel, to the line of King David, Jesse's his father. So a lot of poetic language. Another thing you need to know about Isaiah is Isaiah mixes this language about the great king from the line of David. It mixes it with another great Moses character. So there's language in our text today. We'll get about like a new exodus, uh, how Moses rescued his people and gave them the law. Well, there's going to be this new lawgiver, and that's talked about a lot in Isaiah. And then there's also the blessings that are given to Abraham. All the nations will be blessed. All these sons that are going to bless the whole world. That kind of language comes back again. And so in Isaiah, I encourage you to go read it. It's just 66 chapters. In Isaiah, we have all of these promises and prophecies being mixed together. This week, Isaiah 11, we're fixating on hope, and we're going to see three things in Isaiah 11, okay? Isaiah 11, we're going to see that a true leader will come. Number one, a true leader will come. Number two, we'll see that an ideal earth will come. An ideal earth will come. And number three, we'll see that a united humanity will come. A united humanity. So let's look at the first one. A true leader will come. This again is picking up the language of this shoot from Jesse, from the line of King David. This better king is coming. Uh, And so because a true leader will come, we should be true leaders. We should be humble leaders. We should be servant leaders. Because this leader is coming, and because he has come already and will come again, we should be good leaders, right? We should be a true leader, uh, not someone who is proud and oppresses and hurts other people. So again, look at verse 1. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, right? So judgment, tree's been chopped down, but new life is going to sprout. New growths will come out. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It goes on and later on in this passage uses the language of this shoot is also the root itself. And you might ask yourself, well, how can that be possible? How can it be uh, the root, Jesse and David, and yet it's also the shoot that comes later, right? Like, how does that work? And here's the thing. In Jesus, we have someone who is biologically descended from King David, but then we're also told in the New Testament that he came before. He lived before them. So not only is he the little shoot coming out, but he's actually somehow the root itself, right? He's the source of all good things. And so this is this true leader. He is this great, perfect human leader, the true leader, and yet somehow God himself. And he continues to blow our mind. It's described here in verse 2 that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It goes on and says, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. If that rings a bell, you've probably heard that in Proverbs. We were in Proverbs a while ago, and we learned that true wisdom is fearing the Lord. And this is not fear like we would normally think about it, like horror movie fear or like the fear of a slave to an unjust master. This is a proper respect and awe. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom means we look at what God says and says, and we say what God says is true. What God says is right. I respect that. I want that in my life. And we see that perfect unity lived out in the life of Christ. The spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, his delight shall be 
in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. What does that mean? He goes beyond what his eyes see and ears hear, right? It's not like you don't use your eyes and ears if you want to be a leader. He's saying he's relying on the wisdom of God and on the word of God. And we have to be careful about that because we live in such a naturalistic age. We tend to reduce everything down to only what we can see and hear. The Bible says we need more than that. Okay, you better live righteously according to what you can see and hear, but that's still not enough. You need God himself. You need God's word. You need God's revelation. You can't merely live a naturalistic life and and have that lead to, to good things. It says in verse four, but with the righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So there's this picture that he uses his power to help those who are weak. When I was raising a son, I taught him the reason you have muscles is to help those that are weaker than you. That's what power and that's what leadership is about. Servant leadership, humble leadership. It goes on and says, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lip, he shall kill the wicked. And so judgment is also coming. When Jesus was on the scene, he said, I haven't come this time around to judge, but there's a returning judgment that's coming in the preaching of the apostles. They said again and again, the reason we know he's going to come back and judge is because he rose from the dead and he's sitting on the throne with the father, right? So now we know that's the next step. He's going to judge the whole world. That is still coming, but he came the first time to offer himself, to take the judgment for us, to be the sacrifice on the cross that took our sin and gives us hope of new life and forgiveness by his perfect sacrifice on the cross. But it tells us he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. What does that mean, the rod of his mouth? Rod is symbolic for, for force and for power, a staff, a king's scepter. And so it's this symbolism for authority, for force, for judgment. And he's going to do that with his mouth, right? It's not like a rod's going to shoot out of his face, right? Like this is poetic language, symbolic language of just his very words have authority. Remember what they said about Jesus when Jesus would teach in the Gospels? They're like, man, he's not, he's not like our other teachers. This guy speaks with authority. He is like the new Moses, the new lawgiver. It goes on in verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is echoed in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Ephesians 6. Um, this is the idea that he's going to be dressed in perfect righteousness. That's funny. Interesting. We've had all kinds of slide problems this morning. So the question is, what does a true leader look like? This promise, this prophecy that a true leader will come is telling us this is what you should look for. You should look for someone that's filled with the Spirit, who delights in the fear of the Lord, who's filled and clothed and dressed in righteousness. We're told that our faith places us in Christ. And if you trust in Jesus and I trust in Jesus, then we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. The beautiful thing about Jesus, this true leader, is he has a righteousness of his own in and of himself. For us, it's derivative. Our righteousness only comes from being in Christ. But Christ has this glory that the Father gives him in and of himself. He has life in and of himself. The Gospel of John tells us he has righteousness in and of himself. He's dressed. He's wrapped. It's his belt. Faithfulness. It's wrapped around him. So what does a true leader look like? It looks, it looks like Jesus. If, if we want to be a true leader, we're going to have to look like Jesus. We're going to have to conform ourselves to the image of Jesus. I grabbed a picture. I don't know if this will pop up. I have a picture of a statue. There we go. A statue of Jesus washing Peter's feet. 
Um, there are a lot of statues like this across the country. This one particularly is at Dallas Theological Seminary. So it's a, a graduate school in Dallas to train pastors. Uh, and they're known for being academically rigorous and teaching people Hebrew and Greek and helping people understand theology. But at the heart of this campus, they have this statue that's like, don't forget, they're like, learning a bunch of stuff about the Bible is important, but ultimately you want to be like Jesus, right? And Jesus was the one who came in humility and stooped down to wash his disciples' feet. And he said, go and do likewise. And so not a proud leader uh, that was above other people, but a humble leader who's willing to die for us on the cross and who was in the Gospel of John giving us this image of washing his disciples' feet. Imagine this, like, think of the stories of Peter. Can you remember all the crazy stories of Peter? Like all the stupid things he said, all the dumb things he did, right? And Jesus, like, stooped down, got on his hands and knees, dressed like a slave, and, and washed Peter's feet. That's what true leadership looks like. Jesus said, this is what you should, if you want to be a leader, you should look like this. You remember all the fights that the disciples were having? The disciples were like us, and they, they wanted to have a rank, right? They wanted to be first place. They wanted to be his secretary of state when he came into the kingdom. They wanted to have an important place next to his throne. They're like, who's the most important? Who's the greatest disciple? They're fighting about it all the time. And Jesus says, if, if you want to be a leader, serve. If you want to be a leader, serve. And that's still true today. If we want to be a righteous leader, We want to delight in the law of God and what he says. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says we want to love his word and we want to stoop and serve others. This whole washing feet thing is interesting because I don't know if you know this, in some Christian traditions, it's become like a sacrament in some churches. And I wouldn't say that's wrong. Like I think it can be a very beautiful ceremony. I've heard of this, churches have ceremonies of foot wash. It can be incredibly uh, beautiful kind of worship experience, a wonderful kind of sacrament to enjoy but don't miss the practice of it, right? Make sure you don't miss doing what he's actually describing here, which is actually humbly serving one another. That's what Jesus wants us to do. If you want to do ceremonies too, ceremonies are great. Go for it, right? Like holiday time, we're doing a lot of ceremonies, right? We're putting up lights. We're doing symbolic things. Symbolic things are great. Just don't miss the heart of what Jesus has called us to. The heart of what he's called us to is actually serving other people in love. And we got to make sure we don't Miss that. That's what true leadership looks like. So a few applications, we'll move to the next point. Uh, so how do we do this? How do we do true leadership? Well, number one, it starts with Jesus, right? This is what it's prophesying and pointing towards. Jesus is our hope. He's the anchor for our hope. So if you're not ready to follow Jesus yet, make sure you at least deal with Jesus. Like, don't just put your head in the sand. Don't just look the other way. You've got to deal with Jesus, I come from a skeptical background myself. I struggled with believing things. And I think we've got to deal with Jesus. We can't just ignore him. Uh, he, he's, he's someone we have to look at. We have to read the Gospels, look at the primary sources, understand who he is and, and what he says. Secondly, we should actually follow Jesus. So we say all the time here, we need to follow Jesus. Like That's, that's what it looks like. We trust him. Jesus, you're my Savior. You're the one that gives me true hope. You're the one that gives me life. I'm going to do what you say. John 15 says, if we love him, we're going to keep his commandments. Follow Jesus. Conform yourself to the life of Jesus. Uh, This comes out a lot in leadership. You might have heard this before, but you can't lead anybody if you're not following. Like if you've never learned to follow, you can't lead. That's part of what Jesus is getting at here, where he says true leadership is actually humbly serving others. That's what true leadership 
is the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, placing yourself under the authority of God himself and following Jesus and doing what he says. And then finally, we begin to implement it in our own areas, right? We, we all have areas of authority. We all have areas, spheres of influence. Um, some of you are very aware, like I'm a leader. I have a lot of responsibilities. There are a lot of people I'm leading. Make sure you keep looking to the person and work of Jesus as your model and as your example. Um, some of you think you're not a leader. And I would just challenge you, we're all leaders. We all have influence of some kind over somebody. You may not have an official title or a badge, but we're all leading, right? We are all to follow Jesus, and then there will be other people seeing us follow Jesus. And that's exerting leadership and influence. One of the most common areas of of leadership is in the family. Um, What does it look like for you to lead well and to lead like Jesus, to be a servant leader in your family? Two things Jesus did that I think are important that we kind of balance out in our leadership, whether it's as uh, a parent or even as a teacher or a commander with soldiers or a boss at a, at a business. And that is kind of balancing out both truth and grace. We have to continue to balance those things. Our culture is more and more pulling us in either direction, saying, pick one, pick one. We've got to do both. And this is especially hard in family, right? Thanksgiving holidays, a lot of us just spent time with our dysfunctional families, right? And so you might have grown up in a family where it was all rigid structure, no grace. And so you're going to be tempted to swing the other way in your life and say, I'm going to be a grace person. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be friendly, right? I'm going to go hard after that. Or you might swing the other way. And you're like, man, we had a lot of fun, but I got in a lot of trouble and I'm going to have rules and structure in my family or in my classroom or in my business, right? And what we see in Jesus is he beautifully balances both things. He's simultaneously both things. He's truth and grace. He's structure and kindness. If you're going to be a parent or commander or a teacher, you've you got to give guidance. You know, you have to say, do this, don't do that. You have to do that. But you also have to be gracious and, and willing to stoop and wash feet and show forgiveness and show kindness. And we, we have to do both of these things. We can't just pick one or the other. Okay, next point. We see prophecies here in Isaiah, 700 years before Christ comes, that an ideal earth will come as well. An ideal earth. So part of our hope is in an ideal earth, a uh, a restored creation, everything being made right. So because this ideal earth will come, we should do what we can in our our little zones, our little spheres of influence to to make the world a better place. That sounds so cliche, right? But we should do that. We should make our little worlds better places because an ideal earth is coming. We see this in uh, Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9. It's pictured again with poetic language. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. If you're not catching the poetry here, they're saying the animals that eat people and and other animals and the animals that just eat grass, they're all going to be like happy together, right? Little children will lead them around, the kids won't get eaten, Uh, the lion's not going to eat the cow anymore. You know, it's just... It's kind of a mixing up of the world we know. We know this world that's red and tooth and claw, right? It's this world of death, of kill or be killed. And that's all going to be set right. That's not going to be there anymore. It's going to be restored. It's going to be an ideal picture, a paradise sort of picture. It goes on in verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Imagine that, mamas. 
the little baby. You, you nurse your child and say, go play with the rattlesnakes, honey. Go have some fun. <laughs> the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The adder is another form of snake. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The earth is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Do you see how he's mixing these two things together? Like we're going to have this perfect, balanced earth, restored creation, and it's going to be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Scripture always ties these things together. Obedience to God and a happy, restored creation where there's no more death and pain. We can't separate them, right? In our world, we have a lot of people that are like, we got to restore creation. We got to do this. This is the most important thing, but who cares what God has to say, right? In the Bible, these things are knitted together. We can't have an ideal earth apart from the knowledge of the Lord covering the world as, as the waters cover the sea. These things always go together. It's this picture again, this promised new ideal earth that will come where we actually obey what God says and we're planting trees and playing with the animals and it's everything perfect that we love in the outdoors. We have to be careful because sometimes when we imagine heaven, we think about the Care Bear image, the floating on clouds image, the kind of like disembodied platonic Greek idea of like everything physical is bad and it's going to be this non-physical heavenly world. No, the Bible again and again says it's going to be a restored physical creation. Go read Romans chapter 8. It says in Romans chapter 8, all of creation will be freed from its bondage to decay when the sons of God are revealed, right? In the end, when Jesus returns to wipe every tear from our eyes and set us free and our adoption is complete and we see him face to face, that's when creation will be restored. I grabbed a picture of a wolf with a lamb, so you could imagine that. Um, we were just at the playground last week. We were going to the playground with the grandbabies, and they texted us right before we got there, hey, we're leaving because Ava got stung by a bee. They're like, man, that's a bummer. And so what we look forward to is playgrounds without bee stings, right? In the new heavens and the new earth. This ideal earth, this restored creation will be a place where we can just hang out and play. We don't have to worry about a wolf eating us. We don't have to worry about a bee stinging us. That's the kind of future that we're looking forward to. So as Christians, we should be people more than any other that love and honor and steward well creation. We should be green in that sense, right? We should plant trees and we should take care of things and not pollute, right? We should be all that, but don't separate that from obeying God's commands. Those things go together. We should be the kind of people that do what God says and care for his earth. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech. When we go outside, we should hear creation telling us how great God is. Romans 1 says, in all of creation, we see God's power. It's dripping with this power and his divine attributes. We have to give glory to God for that. Christians should be the ones that bring those things together in a world that's trying to tear those two things apart. So a couple of guidelines here. Proverbs says that righteous people uh, love their beasts, right? We want to be people that honor creation, that are kind and good. But the scripture is clear that the souls of men do take priority over animals and trees, okay? Scripture is clear about that. So we want to care about these things, but also prioritize 
the souls of men. And again, Romans 8 kind of sequences that. It puts it, in a, puts it in a hierarchy that the way that creation is going to be restored is when God fully adopts all the sons and daughters that he's adopted through Christ. That's all, it's all going to flow together. It's all going to go in line. And also, as we care for those that are hurting and broken in this world and care for those that are in pain, like Jesus was always healing people, um, we see that there's a priority given to widows and orphans and outsiders over those who are able-bodied men, insiders, those that have all their stuff together. So there's always kind of a prioritization that we see in Scripture. Souls of people more important than animals and trees, right? Widows and orphans get more attention than able-bodied men, right? There's this kind of sequencing, and it's okay to build a hierarchy and prioritize some things over others. But Jesus puts restoration by faith in Him to the Father as the heart of all those things. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. The end of our separation from God. That's at the heart of all of this. Jesus forgives sin as He dies on the cross as our perfect sacrifice. He rises from death, resurrection, sealing our forgiveness. And he says, this is the heart of this ideal earth that is to come. We should be a people that are generous and kind, care about the world, honor God in our stewardship, but our faith in Jesus is the center of all of it. He is our hope. Restoration to him is what we live for. All right, third point, a united humanity will come. A united humanity will come. As Isaiah is bringing judgment against Israel for all of their sin, one of the things he says in Isaiah chapter 1 right out the gate is you've got a lot of hypocrisy in your worship. You're oppressing and hurting people. Um, You're not taking care of your neighbors and the outsider, and yet you're worshiping God and acting like everything is okay because you're like, we're God's people and we're having these worship services. And God says it makes me sick. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says, I cannot endure iniquity in your sacred assemblies. They are a burden to me. My soul hates them. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. He's saying, man, don't don't mistreat people and then worship me. That, that doesn't make sense. Clean yourself. How do we clean ourselves? Again, we run to Jesus. Jesus is the fountain of life. He's the one that cleanses us. And then that's what's actually going to unite humanity. Jesus will be the rallying point. The language we're going to see here in verses 10 through 16 is that he's going to be like a banner that's lifted up. And just as he says in John, when he's lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. So let's read this in verses 10 through 16, chapter 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, remember I said before, he's not just the shoot, he's also the root. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, so the Assyrian Empire had just come through, was beginning to judge them. So from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. So he's like, man, God's people have been scattered all over the, peop- all over the place, and he's going to gather them all in. In verse 10, it said, the nations will inquire of him as a signal. So we're going to have this 
signal, this flag that goes up. If you're in the army, you know this terminology, right? Signal Corps has become much more like technology oriented now. But in the old days, you would have a, a flag, a banner that would go up and you would direct the army and you would communicate hope and direction and battle orders through this signal flag, through this banner that would go up. And we're told that our signal, our direction comes from Jesus himself. He's the one that directs us. He's the one that shows us which way to go. And so we have this signal for all the peoples, for all the nations, all the outsiders, all the non-Jews, and then also from his people being gathered from all these different places, from Assyria and from Pathros and all these different places. Verse 12 says, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So he's repeating himself again, just in case you missed it. This is not just about the exiled Israelites. This is also all nations, a new united humanity. This is repeated. This theology of a united humanity is repeated most clearly in the New Testament in the book of Ephesians. If you go read the book of Ephesians, it's about this one new man united, the Jews and the Gentiles. That's how it's described sometimes, the non-Jews and the Jews together. One new man. Doesn't matter where we came from. Doesn't matter what neighborhood we grew up in. It doesn't matter what color we are. We're all united in Christ. And he is the signal. He's the banner. I grabbed a picture of uh, a banner being lifted. This is a famous one, uh, Iwo Jima Memorial, where the, the stars and stripes are being lifted up, right? And so this is a, a very famous scene, very emotional scene. And I want to clarify something. Um, I think it's right and good to love your family, and it is right and good to love your nation. But we have to clarify that the signal that is being talked about here is not that signal, Right? This is a symbol of a greater and more perfect signal, a greater and more perfect flag, a greater and more perfect banner, which is Christ himself. And so is it right and good to be patriotic, to love your country, to support your nation and your tribe? Of course it is. But we're looking forward to a future where there will be no more warring nations. We will all be united under one flag, and that flag is Jesus. And that's what this prophecy is about. That's a future that we look forward to. We look forward to being part of this new united humanity. John 12 is the cross reference where Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I'll draw all people to myself. That's clear. When you read all of the Bible, he's not saying every single human being will be in the kingdom. What he's saying is every kind of human being, no matter where you come from, no matter your background, we can all come in to have peace with Christ. He is our signal. He is our flag. It goes on, it says in verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah. Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the West and together they shall plunder the people of the East. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them. And this is kind of confusing, right? Because didn't we just say he was uniting all humanity? Okay, so just follow this poetic language, right? He's saying we're going to unite all humanity. It's going to be one happy family, right? Remember the Coke commercial from the 70s? I wish we all had a Coke. And we're all holding hands. You know, it's like that kind of vision. It's like hippie love. We're all together. And then he's like, and then we're going to destroy these other nations. Okay, okay, which is it? Like, which one is it? And I think what we need to clarify is when we read the Old Testament, language about God utterly destroying certain tribes, and then this other language about all the tribes coming into Christ, how do we make sense of that? Well, on the one hand, in Christ, your DNA doesn't matter. Your skin color doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you came from. If Christ 
is the root of your faith. If He is the signal, then we are one new man. That's what Ephesians is saying. But then there's no other way except for tribal language to talk about people that hate Christ, right? And so I think a translation of some of these, and this, and this tribe will be utterly destroyed. It'd be like, and the Satanists will be utterly destroyed. So I think it's helpful for us to translate that into religious language. And those that hate God will be utterly destroyed. That's been a part of the confusion in the current global situation where we talk about genocide. What is genocide? What's not genocide? Well, when you say you want to wipe out a people that are murderers, you're, you're saying, well, I, I want to wipe out the murderers. You're not saying I want to wipe out everybody that's related to them and their cousins and their sisters. But our language kind of falls short. We don't, we don't know how to say that, right? And so the Bible will talk about people being stopped in their evil and their wickedness. But then there's always this free offer of all kinds of people can be forgiven and come find hope at the feet of the cross. And so we need to recognize that, that tension in how we read these poetic texts. He goes on in verse 15, more destroying, but now he's going to destroy some waterways. But follow me here. The poetry is important. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. So he's talking about the water. He's going to destroy this water. Follow me to the next one. He says, and he will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and he will strike it into seven channels. The river is Euphrates. So what he's talking about are the major bodies of water on both sides of Israel. He's saying, I'm going to destroy the barriers to getting in to the place where God dwells. Do you see this? This is symbolic language. He's saying, there's a barrier on one side. There's a barrier on the other side. I'm going to get rid of that barrier. and People are just going to stream into Mount Zion. They're going to come to Jerusalem. They're going to come to God's place and God's people and find salvation in Christ. That's what the poetry is pointing to here. Seeing those barriers will be completely removed. It goes on and it gives more detail here. It says he'll strike the river into seven channels. And he says he will lead people across in sandals. He's saying you don't need waders to make it in to the house of God. Like you can just wear flip-flops. And I'm not talking about style. I'm saying you don't need special preparation. It's not a big trek to make it in to God's people. He's eliminating the barriers. He's opening the doors. He's saying, come on in. I've paid the price. Jesus Christ has eliminated the barriers so you can come into the presence of God. That's what the entire New Testament is saying. And it's just being told in, in flowery poetic language here in Isaiah chapter 11. There's a barrier on this side. There's a barrier on that side. How are we going to make it into the city of God? Jesus is going to open the way for you. He's going to get rid of that waterway that's blocking you. He's going to get rid of that waterway. The way it's described is like a bridge. We all know that. Jesus is the bridge. He's the bridge to heaven. He's the one that makes our way uh, into the presence of God. He's the way and the truth and the life. He'll lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. Again, coming back to Assyria, why? Because that was the freshest scattering was the Assyrian Empire had scattered people. And he's like, you know what? He's going to build a monorail. and People are just going to zip right back. He's bringing people right back into his presence. That's what he's communicating here. A united humanity will come. He's talking about all the nations and he's talking about the people of God. And so to apply it to us today, there's some of us that have grown up in the people of God and we've sinned, and we've been prideful, and we've done stupid things. And he's saying, you know what? The solution is not you perfecting yourself, but running to Jesus. He's the one that's the highway to get back to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Some of you didn't grow up around religion at all. 
and you feel a sense of shame that you're an outsider, that you don't belong, that you've done bad things, or that bad things have been done to you, and that nothing can cover that shame. And he's saying, no, the Son of God is gathering all the nations in. He's bringing everyone to himself. Again, this is repeated so much in Ephesians. One united humanity. One new tribe in Christ. He's the one that brings us in. It's, it's not where we come from. It's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what's being promised to us here. So how do we bring in this united humanity? We, we continue to lift up Jesus. We're, we're like Iwo Jima. We're, lift, we're lifting up this flag, right? We're, we're raising the banner of Jesus. Now, Jesus is clear in John 12. He was raised up by the Father, right? There, there's a sense which we can't, we can't recapitulate that, right? Like that's already happened, but we lift him up as we praise him, as we say, thank you, Jesus, you're my only hope, as we praise what Jesus did for us, how he was lifted up on the cross as our substitute, how he was lifted up as the cloud rider promised in Daniel 7 through his resurrection. As we lift that up, his death and resurrection, and worship him and honor him and give thanks for him, then we're showing the world who he is. And he says in John 12, he promises all all kinds of men will be drawn to me if I'm lifted up. I think also relationally, you know, so just worship, praise, language, we can lift him up, but just relationally, just having real conversations with people, having the kind of conversations where we're like, I'm not, I don't have it all figured out, but I do know Jesus is my only hope. I don't have all the answers, but I have the answer. And that's Jesus, being willing to have weird, hard, strange conversations with people. I think we're in a world now where that's much more welcome, welcomed and much more needed. People are much more open to spiritual things and wanting to talk about who Jesus really is. And then finally, this season, this is just like low-hanging fruit, just inviting people to church. People that are not involved in church tend to come to church at Christmas time. They'd love to come. We're having services on, on Christmas Eve. It'll be normal Sunday morning service times, but we'll have more candles and fire. Oh, I forgot to light our hope candle. Oh, no. Here we go. Here, this is a demonstration. Invite people to light candles with us. We'll light all the candles and we'll pass out candles and we'll black out the windows and have a candlelight service and have a story time for kids and all kinds of, kinds of fun stuff on Christmas Eve. But again, we can invite people to church and just inviting people to church is a way of, of lifting up Jesus as the signal, as the banner and bringing in that united humanity that he promises. We'll wrap up here. Uh, Hope will come. Hope will come. That's our promise. And the very last phrase, the last half of the verse says that all this highway building that's being done, all this uh, getting rid of the bodies of water that separate us, that is a new exodus. It's a new exodus. It's a a new rescue. The major rescue of the Old Testament was Moses bringing the people out of Egypt in the exodus. And it says the very last half verse here, says, this highway will be as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. It says, all of this future stuff, this hope that's coming, what's it going to be like? It's going to be like when God brought the people out of Egypt. It's going to be a new exodus. And that's what Luke told us as well. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about the new exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem through his death and resurrection. Hope will come. You may be in a terrible situation right now, but hope will come. We know that Jesus is coming back because he came for us already the first time. So hope in him. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you are our savior, that you are our hope, that you're a sure anchor for our souls, and that hoping is not just mere wishing, 
but it's something solid that rests on you, what you have accomplished. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.